Hi there, I'm Evan Troxell. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Evan Troxell, and on this episode of the podcast, I welcome Adam Wilbricht. Adam is the founding partner at Concert VDC, and he's also an architect and the chief knowledge officer at Cunningham Group, which does architecture and planning. And they're based out of Minneapolis, Minnesota, although they have quite a few other offices as well. He has a Master of Architecture from SciArc, which is right down the street from me. He's a California guy, but now he's living in Minneapolis. And I'm sure that that is quite a large culture and weather shock compared to what we're used to here in Southern California. We covered a lot of things in this conversation, including topics such as the impending skilled labor decreases, common data environments, the custody of information, the Genesis transaction, which was a new concept for me, but pretty intriguing, how what Adam is doing at concert can help reinforce health, safety, and welfare, which is the charge of all architects, and how blockchain can also enable the protection of intellectual property, and through using it, how architects can actually have more agency. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy Adam Wilbrick's calm, soothing dulcetones in this fantastic, wide-ranging conversation. It, to me, is interesting to kind of think through the strategy, right, of, of being proactive versus reactive in these situations. Yeah, I think for the topic here at hand, I mean, I think that's what we're seeing is through COVID proper, we're seeing this technological agility, um, this ability for people to realize that you can pivot to new platforms and that the way we could be coming out of this downturn could be looking quite different, you know, from a platform standpoint of just or just how we approach and understand digitalization and how much faster we might be able to convert the market going forward. On the heels of AU where, uh, you know, Andrew Agonos, you know, talked about how he basically made this bold statement that construction will be digitalized coming out of COVID. And it was like, I mean, that's, that's easy to say. Um, it's a whole different uh, inversion to make uh, when you're talking about a profession where, what did they say, starting in 2018, that 40% of the skilled work construction workforce was going to be leaving mm-hmm. the industry with no replacements mm-hmm. over a span of five years. Um, yeah. So what does that mean? You know, right. is that robotics? Is that... Is that more of a focus towards um, offsite construction? Uh, call it prefab, um, call it unitized, call it whatever you want, you know. But it's offsite. It's it's warehouse, micro factories, and warehouses, things right. like that. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, just to kind of watch social media and see different types of things that pop up that start to show different ways that construction is becoming digitized because that otherwise i don't i don't know i guess you have to watch a keynote from au to kind of see some of this stuff coming but how does the general public become aware of this kind of thing as well and how do how is our industry being informed as as architects in this and are we watching closely enough Um, because it's interesting to me to see the boston dynamics spot robot on lots of Instagram stories and Instagram posts and to see the new shoot the the company's escaping me right now, but the the drywall um robotics that's going in and um obviously there's there's lots and lots of stuff going on with graders and you know heavy construction equipment that's controlled by off site computers and satellites, right? GPS enabled kind of grading and it's interesting to me to think about somebody designing or a machine designing the g code for a grader <laughs> right mm-hmm. i mean it's it's one thing to design the output but it's another thing to design the way that it happens right which is kind of that g code that 3d printer that cnc cut like the path the tool path that these enormous tools are using to cut through the earth um, and so i can start to actually see the construction industry becoming digitized, 
right? Like you can actually, if you just watch, it's happening. It's totally happening. And we're seeing lots. I'm actually seeing, because I probably searched one time on YouTube, now the algorithm is serving up videos that are DFMA videos, right? Direct fabrication modeling. And they're showing for resin. They're showing for CNC. They're showing for all of these different ways in which machines can make stuff. And so we start to really think about kind of machine-readable design files, right? Yep. Which, uh, which I think the stuff that you guys are doing with Concert is kind of a, a piece of that bigger puzzle, right? Which is because because it's one thing to say, like, we want this output and we don't want to have to create drawings to get there. But that that that's, uh, like you said a minute ago with, with Andrew's statement, like it's an easy statement to make, but there's a lot that has to go into that to actually make that happen. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean it's been interesting in the conversations I've been having the first place people go is to either to contracts or to the AHJs, the authorities having jurisdiction, right? Like that they're not digital or that they don't have form, you know, um, conforming documents that talk about digital artifacts or digital instruments of service. It's always about documents and documentation, right? Uh, you know, even state statues, I'll talk about signing and sealing documents and, that's the real challenge. But on the other hand, they've embraced digital signatures. So they understand at least the protocols behind a digital signature and that you're just basically applying a password, mm-hmm. password enabled marker mm-hmm. uh, onto a PDF or which is the main digital artifact. So why, why does that digital marker have to be, uh, you know, visual in the format of a document? Mm-hmm. Like, be a totem or couldn't it be just represented by the file itself being referenced against a database? I mean, and that, that, those are just the mechanics of digital signatures, but um, it's this, I, the paradigm shift from documents to being, you know, is it something we got to hold to right. being this you know, talking about now we're talking about code, you know, this G code, this right. the agency of the architect, why wouldn't someone in the future, near future, hopefully say, I've got a brick laying robot here and I need the code to run it quick. Call the architect to get us the code or adapt the code off of their building information model. Mm-hmm. That seems like a very plausible piece. And then, uh, you know, as a project goes on, if that code is iterated, you know, if that call it a, you know, even if it's the call it the pick map or something of what color brick to pick next, um, if you're generating, you know, why wouldn't you generate that off of Rhino? Um, you're you're already creating all that coursing, and it's already being dumped to an Excel. Why wouldn't you convert that for? Well, let's we'll stick with the bricklaying robot here. Um, you know, that would be iterated over time as well. Um, if there's a design change, you're going to have a new bit of code going out for that robot to to lay the brick. Say they punch in a new window into a facade. Well, the brick pattern just changed. So um, I, I think that's entirely within our agency, and I, I think that's where architecture and architecture gets much more interesting. In that there's these digital byproducts from these building information models that can be used to service construction, and then ultimately operations or asset management. Uh, you know, the whole FM and digital twin universe that's opening up. Um, I don't know about you, but digital twin. Did you even hear know the term digital twin this time last year? Yeah, I did, but I could definitely understand a lot of people who didn't or don't understand what it is, right? Like a lot of people just think 3D model, right? right when they right. when they first hear that because it it is a very kind of easy to understand piece of language, but it I think it means much more than than is represented on the surface. So. Yeah, I mean, we're we were actually talking about doing it in our in our office, uh, creating a a model of our office, but then having all of the equipment and having sensors and and basically going through the exercise of making it a lab so that we could learn from our own environment which mm-hmm. traditionally architecture has completely failed at right i mean we, we've talked about it on this show before i know we've talked about it in in many different conferences and things out there that the design process is hypothesis the building is hypothesis until occupied and then once it's occupied is when it actually gets put to the test but that's when we stop measuring anything <laughs> right and so it it is and and there's privacy implications and there's security implications there's lots of definite like things that have to be dealt with at that point but it does seem to me like uh it 
for the most part, architects don't follow through on the measuring part. And so they don't even necessarily understand the value of what a digital twin could offer because it's not in their wheelhouse of expertise to know what to do with the data that's collected, to draw insight from it, to even ensure that they're collecting the right data to derive insight from it. Um, so you could see how this could snowball and people are scared of that, right? I could definitely see some some fear happening in that in that realm. Yeah, there, there's certainly uh, just fear of getting outside of the swim lane that we've been in for generations. Um, but again, I'd like to press on that. You know, what is the agency of the architect? Is if I'm a building owner, what you know, what kind of relationship would I want with someone who is that subject matter expert in the built environment and bringing greater revenue if it's a rental facility or bringing greater experiences to the tenants if it's an entertainment facility? Yeah. Why be a dynamic process? Yeah. And if you're loading it up with all these sensors that are taking all these measurements, you know, well, usually you measure in for the purposes of management. So what is that management? Right. And what are you managing? And now with the diversity of sensors, it opens up a whole new level of inquiry of things that could even be measured and managed. Uh, so that if you're running a grocery store or something like that, um, you know, you could start managing every square foot. I mean, we already know they manage every square foot of shelf space, but right. um, with greater sensors, things like that, that experience could be co-tuned even more. And why, why wouldn't we have a stake in that? Do you feel, though, that that architects are willing, like, let's put the able side aside, you know, the agency side to the, mm-hmm. to, to, to the side for a moment. It, it seems to me like even understanding what's possible from a data collection or capture perspective is a constantly changing environment, right? It's mm-hmm. not something that people think about really doing today for the most part, right? There's definitely people who do, but for the most part, I think architects as a category don't. And we're pretty much all the way through design school, all the way through licensure, all the way through production of working on projects. It's about design intent. And so there's a certain level of detail that is achieved, but what we're talking about is something that is kind of magnitudes greater than what quote unquote we're used to, right? Because when you talk about let's get the code to lay out the bricks in this building, like that is a level of detail to which most design architects never get to mm-hmm. in their in the documentation now. It's not to say they can't or they won't, but they don't, right? Mm-hmm. I mean what what do you think about that as far as like being I don't think it's a it's a question of capability, but I think it's more of a, a question of like is this the direction that we see architects going to take, to take, to grab hold of that agency that you're talking about. Well, I'm I'm certainly looking for natural vectors that might be um, sort of amenable to our education. I think there's a fundamental problem with the architectural education in in that you have to defend your design. You have to justify everything. So it creates kind of a timid creature in a way. So your, your measure of success is acceptance versus driving value like you would get in a business school environment or something like that. Right. No one asks, uh, what kind of revenue can you turn around in this? If you create, if you created this building, what kind of revenue could it generate? You know, you don't even get near that. It's, it's, it's much more about space and form and um, it doesn't even touch the basics of our licensure, which is health, safety, welfare. Yeah. So if health, safety, welfare um, is actually a contingent part of facility management. I would argue in that you we we could have a and sorry i'll have to use the word agency but i mean we, we could have a role in the maintained especially in a post-pandemic situation uh, the the health safe the health safety element of a building uh, becomes very real and very quantifiable now so that that's a place um but on the other hand if you look at the education itself students are ingesting an enormous amount of data for the purposes of synthesizing a design um, GIS data, you know, the soils reports, the, the, um, the contour data. Um, unfortunately, they don't tend to have real clients, but there's a whole other data set that comes from doing sentiment surveys and all the things you would do for building programming. We take all that data and, you know, even in the last few years with the uh, 
with the accessibility of data visualization platforms, things like that, we are able to take that data and do something much more with it, even including plugging it into um, computational design algorithms mm-hmm. and like that. So I think there's a facility for data that's evolving in the pipeline. Mm-hmm. More senior architects don't see it because they've been rewarded for uh, a great sensibility and use and taking their experience and intuition and synthesizing the design. But now we have this data to bring these insights into the design. And so now there's this, you're, you're actually building this vertical stack of data that's starting, um, you know, from the soils report and guess what? The soils report even gets changed as you're, as you're building, as you're asking more questions, as you're synthesizing the design, you realize you need another soil boring somewhere or you need to go out and get some more survey data or a GIS uh, can start bringing you demo, you know, quick demographic data. So you understand if you're building a school, what, what sort of uh, student bubble might be coming uh, in some cases ahead of the school district. So you can take these insights and, um, and because it's versioned data too, now all of a sudden the data chain in custody, it, it becomes a much it becomes a very interesting role of the architect is because we're there first. Mm-hmm. We have the custody of this information that's going to get synthesized further and further all the way to the end of construction. Um, so is the end of construction the end of this data cycle of this data build? Or is that just the beginning of where you get to actually activate it and then test against your design, test against what you synthesize through these through the building programming process, um, find out what's real and what's not. Uh, it goes to that old story of when people, you know, when you design a college campus, you don't put the sidewalks down or initially you see where people cow path. Yeah. And then you put the sidewalks in cause that that's going to be the, where people naturally walk to. Has anybody ever really done that? I don't think so. I think, I think we just see the aftermath of that. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm content to think that that actually happened, but you know, you, we, you can start, <laughs> Potentially, you could start simulating that, too. Yep. Um, yep, you could. It's interesting to me to think about the things that you just talked about and how nonlinear it actually is. But we're, I think we still educate people as if it were a linear process. And it definitely was in the past. Like, there, was a, there were meetings, there was synthesis, and there was output, right? And obviously, scope changes and, and things like that do happen. But I think if you kind of refine it down to its most basic level, but now... Uh, because things are changing so quickly and the uh, everybody knows that things can change quickly. I think that's part of this algorithm <laughs> is, is like everybody knows that I'm the client. I have a lot of power. I can change things whenever I want. And architects are pretty lenient when it comes to that, right? I mean, hopefully they're getting paid for it. But I, you, you do see it quite often where a major change happens later in the process. And we all know that, you know, the most successful projects are the ones that make most of their decisions early. They're important decisions early, right? It makes a much bigger impact through, through for schedule and, and timing and all those things, but, but, but things still change. And so when you're talking about this kind of custody of, of the information and that also should basically tells you that we have to understand how to keep it fluid Right, because we also are the ones who know that things change late in the game, and even if we don't want them to, right? So, if if the program substantially changes um, for this school site that you're talking about, and all of a sudden we decide that this building needs to be tall, not wide, right? Uh, and going back to that soils report idea, I mean, yeah, design can affect those original findings because those original findings were based on a certain functional output, which was going to be a wide school, not a tall school. Right. And they make a recommendation based on that information because it's the best they had at the time. But now it's, it's complicated, right? I mean, we can go back and change that later. They are going to update that recommendation because now you need to do it tall, not wide. And that changes everything. And so, Mm The more fluid that this can all be and the more we are willing to allow it to be fluid and have this bi-directional data flow between all of these kind of interconnected pieces, uh, I think that that's going to – that does change the value of an architect 
when they have that custody that you're talking about, when they truly own that custody and are not looking to hand it off as quickly as possible. Right, right. So you're, you're, you're talking about, in this case, you're talking about the interoperability of, of the data to an extent, you know, if, yeah. that, if it's flowing back and forth. And ideally, they're on platforms that talk to each other. We're not quite there yet. The, the soils report, for all I know, doesn't talk to anything. Right. <laughs> True. You know, why, why couldn't it? You know, right. why, why you know, why isn't that getting modeled in? And at some point, there's some intelligence in a building information model that it, it understands soil pressures and things like that. And, you know, why wouldn't we be getting our building permits based on uh, simulation outcomes, just like we do ComCheck for uh, energy performance and so, or structural engineers for the most part? You just re- you, you present your report instead of having the building official do the work. You just show them that you're complying with you know, through some simulation platform that you meet the spirit of the code versus some sort of mathematical rendition of exiting. And um, we're certainly doing that for egress uh, simulation. If you can show you can empty an auditorium in the requisite amount of time with fewer stairways or fewer doors, you could still get a building permit if, if the, if the AHA, you know, buys off on it. Yeah. Um, a tremendous amount of latitude. Um, on the other side of the coin, though, is um, the the idea is that the data, if you think of data and information as a supply chain, mm-hmm. as designers, we can only, you know, in some cases, we actually draw ahead of what we know. So we don't know what that mechanical right. unit size is actually going to be. And we're waiting for information because that's part of the information supply chain. But we'll draw ahead of it. And then we end, guess what? We end up erasing them. So if, if the data is a supply chain and we start moving into supplying that data just in time or at the right periods of time so that we can analyze performance, we can analyze cost, we can analyze constructability, we can validate the design more frequently. And this isn't original. This is, this is what Phil Bernstein and others talk about in this new digitalized workflow is that because we don't have to take everything and morph it into paper documents we can just take this data and gain more utility out of it and behave more like agile software uh programmers where you you have a you know you have a you know, you meet every two weeks right you go through what you what's happened you know what have you accomplished and then set up the next two weeks well what if at that every two week period you were taking this digital data and publishing it in such a way that you are doing all you're basically qualifying it against all the criteria you need to qualify against at that period of time. So is the building still performing? Why would you wait till the end of SD to find out if your building's performing or not? That could be catastrophic. Uh, or 20%, how many times have you been on a project that's 20% over at you know 30% DD and you go and erase three weeks worth of work? That's what we, I think that's really the value we we're able to bring is if we just treat our data much, not like a commodity so much, but as the essential fuel yeah. for the, for the progression of the project. So it's less like gambling every time you finish when, when you get to a milestone and you're waiting to see if it comes back approved. It's that valid. You get off a validation cycle into an actuation cycle of, of proving out your design. So that's something I'm looking much forward to as we get into a post-document economy here is that the data is much more forward and much more proving out the functionality and call it the conformity of the building with the codes, all of those things. So you're not getting these surprises. I think the, the, one of the words that you, you kind of keyed in on there was the validation. And to me that sparks the thinking around trust, right? Um, because what you, what this way of working requires is trust. And I think the AEC industry is not built on that. (laughs) You're right to say it kind of bluntly. It's like the architect doesn't trust the contractor because they're doing the cost estimating and they're padding their numbers, for instance. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, a lot of people have grown up through the profession over the decades of fudging their drawings, like putting putting stuff in there that that looks right or or will will help will help a shortcut 
to for an outcome that you know is going to work, but you don't want to go through all the stuff to get there, right? So back in the days of of hand drawing, it's like, what's the dimension? It's whatever I write it is, right? It's whatever I put on the dimension string. And nowadays, it's not like that, right? You model it accurately so that the dimension shows accurately. And what's interesting to me to think about is how much kind of trepidation there is in the senior leadership of our profession around this trust issue because mm-hmm. they've grown up in a low trust environment throughout their career. And now the technology is forcing trustworthiness. And I can point to something as simple as a Google search to make my point, which is you trust what that thing is going to give back to you. How did that happen? It happened over time, right? It was accurate. It was quick. It, you found what you were looking for, and you don't always find what you're looking for at the top link, but you find what you're looking for, and it might lead you somewhere else that helps you find what you're looking for, where previously you would have no clue where to look, right? And so it's built this trust over time, and I feel like the technology that we're using is doing the same thing. The environmental analysis is mm-hmm. using actual GIS and environmental data, weather station data and everything to give you a baseline or like a basis of design to design to and use that information and trust it as because it 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 has collected real world things and put them into a database, right? It's not there's no synthetic information in there that I know of. I think it's it's interesting to see this kind of non-trust in the process and in the system and at the same time see complete trust in an mm-hmm. algorithm on a day-to-day basis all the time. And I don't think people think of those two things as the same, but they kind of are the same. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, this it's the trust of basically what architecture and con- design and construction has morphed into is this adversarial relationship, right? You've, you've seen that. Yeah. I'm sure you've seen that meme where it's a there's a a giant boat called the change order and the little ding hanging off of it's called the original contract. I mean that that's the gamesmanship. I I know when I was in architecture school, you know, people were telling me that you know you got to watch the contractor or they'll totally you know they'll totally pull a fast one on you or something like that. But it was you know but when you start meeting the people who are actually building the building, when you have that essential moment of doing construction administration, you realize that there's most people on the job site aren't there to, you know, to screw anyone over. They're there to do a good job and do it right the first time so that they can drive by that building and show their kids, Hey, I built that. And, but the problem is, is that they're working from incomplete information. So that's where the gamesmanship is, is that they're guessing as much as we are padding things in to get the right pricing in on the, on the front end, on the back end, they're padding in their own pricing to figure out or, to protect themselves against, against what comes from incomplete information. So now if we're working with an explicit information set that should be able to change the entire dynamic because now we can work collaboratively Um, as much as that word is overused, but uh, you know, the sooner you can bring in some, the person who's going to build it and work with you virtually on the outcome of that, particular system or or assembly um, and for the even better have them provide the shop drawing as the design exploration um, you you get so much more value out of that now everyone in the room knows exactly what's going to be built and you might have only drawn it once or drawn the bulk of it once and then made you know minor revisions for design intent um, you know that that shouldn't be a surprise to anyone listening to this is that that that's what we're shooting for here. But uh, the fact that we're taking so much time to get there and we're even allowing all of these obstacles to be in the way. Uh, I mean, the contract, especially with the risk aversion, mm-hmm. uh, look how much risk where you're reducing by working this way. Uh, it's just phenomenal. You would think that the insurance companies would be putting the screws to the AIA to uh, develop a contract to let us work this way right? much more quickly. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to think about because this this kind of low trust environment and this it's it's kind of evolutionary, right? Like and I and I mean that like from a human scale of evolution. It's programmed into us. And it's interesting for me to think about projects that I've worked on where we've had a great contractor or design build partner. Mm-hmm. And people are genuinely surprised by that. <laughs> right. 
And to me, that's that's. Uh, I mean, it's it's promising on one level, but it's also kind of saddening to see that that we've come from such a uh, that that is such a surprise for people who've been in the industry for a long time. And I'm just wondering, like, as far as like, how did we get to here? I'm wondering now if it actually is kind of this collaborative data driven process that is enabling these new exceptions. And I don't, I don't think that they're exceptions, but I'll, I'm going to label that with air quotes because that's how I think how, again, like the, the gray hairs in our industry see it, right? They see a, a great contractor as an exception, not the rule. So it's, it's interesting to me to think about how maybe the data and the collaboration has enabled this kind of, let's just call it the next evolution of the trust process in AEC. I, I'm wondering, what, what do, you, do you think that architects um, can become the master builder once again or should become the master builder again? Or do you think that they are a valuable piece of the puzzle and should not compete on all of these other aspects of the, the delivery process? I've always kind of bristled at the term of the master builder because that, that evokes the image of a Corbu or Frank Lloyd Wright, someone actually wearing a cape. It's sort of the hero individual. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think that is the way to go. It's uh, what I have learned over the years is that if you get a room with a builder, an architect, an engineer, and you have to go do some sort of uh, exercise together, everyone looks at the architect to be take the authority position and be the coordinator because mm. that that's our skill set is that we can synthesize all of these different systems um, and speak all these different languages. And, you know, by all means use the conductor of an orchestra analogy, but, um, but that that's our role is that we understand how all these systems work together better than anybody. And so why wouldn't we reinforce that role going forward. So call it a master builder, if you would, but maybe the grand coordinator or the, you know, especially if we're, we have agency of being first, first in mm-hmm. we're the ones who hire the engineers, contractors nowhere to be seen at this point. We have first touch with the client. We, we understand them sometimes. We're almost like psychologists in a way. We, we, absolutely we an understanding of them that might go beyond their own understanding or we apply a lens to how they operate organizationally and synthesize that into built form. Uh, so, so by virtue of being first on the block and the, and there's this thing in uh, blockchain that's called the Genesis transaction that I really like mm. in that uh, by virtue of having the Genesis transaction, you now have in essence control or you have, uh, this power that nothing else has and, and leverage that uh, you could, you know, like any power you can leverage it for good or evil. Uh, but in this case, you know, the, the good is that uh, you can continue to grow this. So it's a different, you move past this idea of handover that you're just aggregating more yeah. and more information sources and the contractor is just another information source the builder and now you have fabricators and now you're getting into modular and now you're you're taking this building information you might need to uh, shake it out differently so it can go direct to digital fabrication it can go to a robot or it can uh, use um, modular you know nominal sizes of plywood and wood and all the other materials in such a way that there's an increased efficiency. So there's less waste of, you know, if I, I, I think any building owner should be appalled that if they learn that 30% of the money they put into the materials going into their building is leaving in the dump. Right. I mean, 30% is. It's a lot of percent. That's a lot of material to truck in and then truck back out just for the purposes of making a big pile somewhere on the planet. So right. um, that, that's the value we can bring. This, these are the new value propositions. So if we're actually looking at the waste and we're, we're designing using um, the software, we either purchase license or write ourselves um, to these, to these new goals. Um, you know, who wouldn't want to hire an architect that would tell you, you know, instead of 30% of waste, you, there's going to be 10% on this project and I'll show you how. I think that's incredible. That, it is. That's, yeah. that's what we should be doing. 
it, it takes me back to my some some kind of theories that I'm formulating around this idea because I still hear a lot of architects that I'm very close to and and many that I'm not talking about this kind of romanticized idea of the master builder and wanting to become that again um, versus what I think is I think more in tune with what you're proposing, which is a valuable piece of the puzzle and. There's a lot of gray area around that. I don't want to say like the puzzle is perfectly cut out, right? There's lots of kind of pieces that stretch out into other other things because we do have to understand how all of it works. And we have to be able to understand the possibilities of what a change could bring and mm-hmm. what additional values a client could get or an owner could get out of a building that they weren't necessarily looking for in the beginning. I mean, to me, those are some of the most successful projects is when they talk about their architects bringing ideas to the table that they never conceived of and were way more valuable to them than they ever thought could be achieved with a building. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I, that all that to say, like, I don't, I don't think that it's a perfectly cut out piece of the puzzle, but I don't think that we can outdraft a contractor who's not going to look at our details anyway. Right. And so kind of when you look back and, and rethink the whole process, and you think about what the agency needs and you think about what the contractor needs and you think about what the architect's trying to do to serve their the owner and you think about all these other kind of technology pieces that plug into this whether it's robotics or insurance or contracts or any any of these other things it seems to me like we kind of need to step back from that idea of becoming the master builder in an increasingly complex built environment and really own that kind of what can we put into our documentation or our models or our deliverables to get you down the path faster rather than what do we need to do to cover our asses (laughs) right because that to me would would completely change the game and it seems like that's actually starting to happen to me i mean the conversation that we're having right now is I think showing that, that these, that the landscape is changing. I think people are not trying to hide things in their documentation or omitting it from the the rendering or what, you know, it's, it's forced a, a, a trustworthiness. The technology has forced a trustworthiness in the, in the document because you can get in and you can look around and you can look at the data and you can, you can see what's actually there and you're not just looking at one curated view of the project. And it's interesting to use the, I'm trying to find the right analogy too, because, you know, you talk about a puzzle and that sort of has fixed edges and you don't just swap out puzzle pieces. But in this case, we, we are managing a very dynamic environment where there are millions of decisions going into it. And I don't, don't exaggerate with that either. I mean, even a, a, sort of prepackaged bathroom unit. Basically, I was talking to a fairly large contractor. They had, they had basically reduced the basic bathroom deployment for a, a public restroom. And they still had millions of iterations possible just down to all the hardware and the fixtures and the tile. All and those combinations, yeah. Combination, it gets into the millions. Yeah. So the complexity we manage is, is massive. And... Uh, and this is something we're considering with concert as well is, and, and we're trying to solve with concert is that because the data is always changing and there's so many different companies involved, so many different agents, um, whether or not you have the right data that you're referencing at, at any given time becomes absolutely critical. Um, I just sat in on an Autodesk university class on ISO. It was a, presentation on using ISO 19650 on the BART project that's going on up on the east side of the bay. Um, So they have three different uh, common data environments. Uh, There's a Bentley one, there's a, the Autodesk one with BIM 360 and then share uh, SharePoint site. And each of those is warehousing different types of data, but whenever they exchange data between one to the other, they they were talking about how they have to triple check to make sure they've actually got the latest file yeah. across that they're about to do all of this work against. So everything is done in reference to something else. So um, one of the purposes of concert is to uh, assign a 
cache and then version to every single file that gets registered through our through the service. So the idea of being able to exchange this data and have this you know, going back to the trust is at any point in time you now have to say this piece of data that I have, I have to be able to trust that this is I know exactly that this is authentic and hopefully it's the latest version if that matters to you or you know, unless there's an older version that you have to become reliant on, you know, maybe it's manufacturer's data or something like that. So this one elevator um, unit, I, I don't want the next version of it. I have to have this version. You can all continually verify that you've got that version of the data in hand. So I, I see that as expanding our role too, is just as these data managers, you know, just as there's document management systems, now we're getting into the data management and the authenticity of the data because, um, there are still bad agents out there too that might want to. Um, we're, we certainly know of people looking to who doctor PDFs that the architect has issued in order. That to happens. What? It apparently yeah. happens. Yeah, I haven't. I'm luckily for in my career, I've never experienced that. But photograph uh, wow. yeah. doctored too to to show compliance with the design intent. Or um, I just recently talked to a gentleman. He was in he's in his third year of a hurricane hurricane litigation, and it took they took him a, it took him a year and a half just to figure out what documents to actually use as the evidence. Wow! So, so I feel like we've set the spent the the first forty five minutes of this conversation kind of setting the stage for what you guys are working on because you know we're thinking about trust, we're thinking about complexity, um, we're thinking about timelines and scope and all of these different variables and constraints and inputs and outputs. And that is a mountain to manage, right? And and you're talking about the architect being well-positioned to be the manager of all of that information. Uh, so to me, this is where something like concert really does play an important role. And it's the first thing that I've seen that actually tries to do this in AEC. Maybe there's others that I'm not aware of, Maybe there's others that are in complete stealth mode. I don't know. But I would love it if you would like step back because you just gave a great example. You, uh, you know, they're, they're triple checking their data to see if, if on this BART project to make sure that before they move forward, they've, they're all using the right data, right? So can you kind of step back from that and just at a very accessible level, talk about what you guys are doing at Concert with blockchain? Sure, sure, and you know the the blockchain certainly is isn't the, the the primary reason for existence. They say blockchain is a solution looking for a problem, but mm-hmm. the problem we initially that initially started this company was how do you sign a building information model? So what we were looking at is what are the obstacles to digitalized practice, and one of the big ones is is that. We can't apply the artifact of our license of, as, our, as professional architects and engineers. We we can't apply our our what's required by law, our signature and seal, to the data. We have to basically deprecate it down to two D documentation, just just for purposes of having the surface to sign. And it just doesn't make sense anymore. And we're looking at generations of practice where there's been zero productivity gains the same problems continue to be the same problems um, we have evangelists throughout the industry saying if we just went all digital we, we, we could cure so much mm-hmm. through ipd projects and these experimentations uh, i believe the industry is seeing much lower risk much greater collaboration much better outcomes um, through the use of digital data and the firm I work for uh, has direct experience in that. So that was the original piece. Um, but by virtue of building the company and exploring, uh, we started understanding the complexity of the data itself and the notion that uh, many firms see their data, and, and rightfully so, um, they see their design data as their intellectual property. And by virtue of the law, everything we create as architects and engineers, we we have a copyright to, effectively by virtue. Now we, I, I won't get so much into the complexities of our clients who uh, lay claim to that design information by virtue of their patronage. Is that now I now own the design, 
by law, that's actually not true. We would have to assign that license over. But to that end, anything we create, any artifact, any, you know, so you create a VR, you create a virtual reality of the design and you want to put it out there into the public for, um, for a client group to review, to authentic, you know, to approve the design for, for a contractor to, you know, get some context for pricing, all those things. There's been a hesitance because we feel like that if we're giving away the data, this goes back to the AutoCAD days, that we're basically giving away the secret recipe to Kentucky Fried Chicken or Coca-Cola or something. <laughs> which, which isn't true. We are, we are protected, but there's notions that this data is going to be taken and they're going to go build 20 more buildings with it because we're basically giving them the source code of our software. Um, so by virtue of being able to register your files um, with the technologies concert uses, you can at any time, uh, whether something bad has been done or not, to say this was the exact file that I sent at this time. So that, that takes us to our next step is we want to share data. Um, there's two ways to go about securing your data. One is to lock it down. So the second someone changes something, it blows up and ceases to function anymore. Uh, we don't believe in that. We believe that the whole purpose of the data is to share so that the recipient can get more value out of it. So if we're sharing a building information model with a contractor, we absolutely want them to take that model and slice it and dice it however they want um, for the purposes of pricing, constructability, sending to fabricators to start generating their shop drawings, et cetera, um, by all means. But at some point, whether it's through legal claim or through just miscommunication, you still need to be able to point at what is the file that we actually provided. And it, it gets more interesting in an IPD situation, integrated project design, where we're, we still have to sign something. And so if it's purely in an IPD digital format, at some point we're applying our license to a set of files that are going to be shared. And again, they're going to be sliced and diced in a million ways. We still have to be able to show this is exactly what we signed. And guess what? We're, we're, not, we're not going to be signing it once. We're going to be signing it again and again. With every RFI, with every improvement to the project, we are technically re-signing those instruments of service. So the whole point of concert is, is to give you the ability to sign that information very easily, uh, but then also authenticate exactly what is the information we actually put out into the world so that there's no question, especially if there's a claim. Um, and, and it's really to reinforce the architect's license of health, safety, welfare. Our role in society isn't specifically great design or great value to the client. It's actually to preserve the health, safety, welfare in our society. So, we're at risk of losing that. And we hope through uh, the utility that concert brings is that we can reinforce that and basically reintroduce the value that architects are bringing by virtue of these sophisticated digital artifacts we're creating. And it's just not the building information model. There's all of these byproducts from this model uh, that can be used uh, for the, even for the operations of the building. Not everything we do is solely for construction. Now, um, a robust building information model can have all kinds of utility throughout the operations phase of the building. Yeah, I would assume that there's, yeah, obviously there's performative-based documentation of fixtures and equipment, there's specifications, there's, there's so many other pieces that go into that package of documentation that is bigger than the BIM. The, the BIM is, is again, like one piece of the puzzle and it is iterative in nature. And so this idea of re-signing is really important. Uh, and I, I would think that kind of as a, I don't know, it's like a mechanism along the way, you kind of need two different ways to review that. Obviously, you talked about the ease of signing as as a key aspect, right? Otherwise, people aren't going to use it. But But then you need kind of a human readable component of that to ensure that Again, everybody's using the right thing based on whatever your system is telling them. But number two, I would think that also, and if not in the beginning, at some point, there's going to be a machine-readable version of that where the software that you're using knows whether you're using the most current version or not. And it's going to be able to do some QA, QC for you right, right on the spot or ongoing. It's just something that's always running. Right. By virtue of integrations, um, that's certainly going to be the case. Uh, I I've seen some incredibly complex Navisworks models that are assembled, you know, for the purposes of clash detection. And um, 
imagine just one of those files being out of date. File. Yeah, yeah, it's out of date. You're just wasting all of this time. Um, that that's really where we want concert to be. There is to be, and it's especially being platform agnostic, is just to take any data and even if you're doing an underlay of a napkin sketch, is it the right napkin sketch that yeah. you scan? Or frankly, you can sign a napkin sketch. There's nothing saying that right. an architect deliverable has to be this hard-lined or sophisticated model. I've seen I've seen garages built on three napkin sketches and signed and introduced to an AHJ who's, I mean, it's a garage. Fine, looks great. And they, they let that go through. So, um, you know, that's probably the more pedestrian side of things, but the more sophisticated side too is uh, once you've started registering all your digital assets, well, now you're creating a database of your digital assets across projects and you can start getting deeper understanding of what you're delivering and what are the components of what you're delivering. And you can look cross-sectionally at a project. How many RFIs were you sending data out? You know, so the, the, the metadata and the, attribute, the attributive data. How much of the data did we own? How much of the data was owned by somebody else? What, how, about, how much of the data was owned by the manufacturers that contributed the data to the project? Um, we see an elevator company registering their um, their digital assets that they contribute to our projects. So now all of a sudden our building information models are an amalgam of multiple intellectual properties. So we've got mechanical units, we've got elevators, heck, even the doors hardware families might be the IP of Schlage or uh, Yale or someone like that. So if anything, it amplifies our role as these data managers of these people who are taking product objects and synthesizing them into design. Um, it, the ownership of the design becomes a little more complicated in, in that way too. So, you know, the overall design is ours, um, but uh, the model itself now is more like a rap song. It's uh, It's got samples from other people's intellectual property. I was thinking it's kind of like a car, right? Like a, a Honda yeah. is made of parts made by thousands of other suppliers, but it's a Honda, right? It does, it does seem to me like there's some kind of a analogy to be drawn there. It, it's interesting to me to also think about what's the possible in the future based on this database that you're talking about, which is the contract could be in there, could be componentized. It could be checked against completion in other phases of a project. And you could start to actually base payment off of that. Mm-hmm. It seems like there's a rich kind of roadmap ahead of possibility here where again like it all kind of comes back to do you trust the system Mm -hmm. do you trust the algorithm do you can trust do you trust the analytics that are coming out of this thing um and so so yeah i mean i i can definitely see there's a huge kind of security implication here right with all of that yeah, I, in case you had noticed, I, I avoided really talking about blockchain at all because just the services of I mean, the trust function is so important. But the blockchain is the underlying trust function is because the data is getting written to a third party database that could far outlive uh, any other any company uh, with its own proprietary database. So you're, you're effectively writing your transactions or your registrations into this public ledger and by virtue of the fact that you, when you're when I issue a file to you, that's usually in conformance with some milestone event, which is potentially in conformance with a with a contract. So when the construction document set, it's still called documents there, but when when I issue the CD models, a lot of things could happen now. Is that because I've digitally registered them? I have proof that I that my company has actually put these into existence. So we have now fulfilled the contract. Right fulfillment can trigger uh, it could trigger notification to the insurance company saying this company just put something into the universe it could trigger um, invoicing that we fulfilled this piece of the contract it's time to issue an invoice uh, it could go the other way to the owner to say we fulfilled this pay pay up um, because this has been fulfilled uh, and, and then there's a there, there's further residual potentials down there um especially even for payment of your your consulting engineers things like that so it it could work across the whole the the whole cross-section of the project 
so you guys are are out in the open obviously uh we're we're talking right now and this episode will probably go out this year uh towards the end of the year um but what's next for you guys or where where are you at with concert what are you looking to do with concert right now to kind of get it out into the like you just said <laughs> this is something you've you've put out you're, you're putting it out there and you want people to, to know about it so what, what do you want people to know about it and where are you headed so the fabulous thing about concert is that it addresses what many of us in the industry consider to be a very real problem as well as opportunity to move to digitalized practice. Um, the, the original seed funding for concert was derived from um, seven large architecture firms who are affiliated with the AIA large firm roundtable, um, which led to us being incorporated as a uh, a standalone company uh, in February of 2020. Um, so our, our, our development at this point has been moving into a viable product with uh, a substantial number of pilot projects to, for, for the purposes of testing. We're now moving into, um, in the next few weeks, we'll be moving into a, a fully commercial platform with pricing and taking on uh, customers and awesome. deriving our own revenue with the purposes of uh, establishing more funding, basically to keep this thing growing. Uh, software is hard. Blockchain is hard to do. Um, there's an enormous talent uh, required to uh, create software that uses blockchain efficiently. Uh, blockchain can be incredibly expensive if you use it uh, the way it's written. Um, but there's clever ways to use it. And uh, we, we have some definitive talent that has uh, created what, what these blockchain contracts, as they're called, um, to take our data and memorialize it in this, public, in this public format. So it's interesting what we're doing because typically blockchain is used for financial measures or tokens, um, some sort of representation of value. Uh, but there's a identity side of blockchain. So we've created this, our own marketplace in a way, um, or a potential future marketplace of identity. So the identity of your firm, the identity of your project, your, your own identity can all commit transactions effectively or um, use your blockchain identity for the purposes of authentication of who you are and who what your company is. And, and, and that begins to facilitate uh, all kinds of things downstream as, as a roadmap for us. It's really important to draw the distinction between blockchain and cryptocurrency slash Bitcoin, right? Because I think most people, when they hear blockchain, they automatically think crypto. So you, what you're really talking about is the ledger system, the way mm-hmm. of processing identification and ownership over digital files in this case. Correct. And then appending a, a, an identity to them. So it's not only a authentic file, it's an authentic file from your company. Yeah, it's it's incredibly exciting. To me, this is one of the, the important puzzle pieces uh, to just beat that analogy to death about mm-hmm. uh, moving towards digital deliverables. And if if we don't have this component in place, that just won't happen. And there's a there's a whole mountain to climb with all of the other pieces that still have to fall into place for that to happen. Um, the AHJ as one of the big ones that we talked about early on in this conversation um, is is a huge one. And and there's not a lot of incentive right now for them to change how they do things. But I think uh, we should really be pushing for those policies to change as a profession and as an industry, because it's our industry at stake and it's our profession at stake. And the world is getting more and more complex. The things that we're putting into our building are based on, you know, the decisions are based on actual data and they have to, we have to be able to show that performance. And to me, it makes a heck of a lot of sense when all of that kind of underlying infrastructure is similar so that that database can really have and host all of that information so that you can start to tie cost and ownership to performance and things like that. I think it could really change the way that projects are contracted, like the business model of architects, I think will have a lot more possibility with, with technologies like this in place. You don't have to keep doing it exactly how we've always done it. You framed it up perfectly. Um, couldn't agree with you more. 
Well, thanks for taking the time to hang out and chat today. It's always great to talk to you, and uh, hopefully we can do it again soon. Uh, is there? I, I want to put links to, in the show notes for uh, how people can follow along, can, but I would also love to give you the opportunity to, to tell everybody what those are so they can hear them as well. Sure. Our, our website is uh, getconcert.com. And it's that easy. That's our public face. Um, the website is at a certain place right now, but we'll be converting it into the commercial site in the next few weeks so that people can start signing up and uh, giving concert a try in their own organization. And I'll, I'll put a link to your LinkedIn, Adam. I appreciate you taking the time once again today. It's been a great conversation. It's been my pleasure, Evan. Thank you. All right, and cut. <laughs> Thanks for hanging out with us today. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.